Welcome back to another exciting episode of Cosmic Soup. I'm Cynthia Thurlow-Kruver, and today we're going to turn things upside down. Our guest has spent years in the food industry in a number of capacities as a chef, a general manager, a caterer, an event coordinator, and even an instructor. On top of that, he spent over a decade leading retail teams to top-tier results and has become known in both industries as a fixer and an innovator. You might recognize him as the voice of Cosmic Soup. Say hello to executive chef and podcast guru, Mike Peacock. Well, hello, Mike. (laughs) Hey, how's it going, Sin? It's great. Welcome to the other side of the cosmos. I know, right? How does it feel to be in the hot seat? It's backwards. Everything is backwards. <laughs> I'm in the alternate universe, and I'm trying to wrap my head around this. This is, uh, is this on Stranger Things? I think they call it, we're in the upside down. <laughs> we are in the upside. Is this soup spelling? Like, what's the soup doing? <laughs> I know, right? So, um, let's just get started. I, I want to, I have a lot of questions to ask you. Sure. Um, first, for the audience, I have to tell them, and I think we've said this on another episode, but Mike and I used to work together when I owned a restaurant. It was a casual upscale bistro called Cafe Destino, and Mike was the restaurant manager and the chef. And um, he's an amazing chef. I have the favorite dish, my favorite dish, Mike, I wanted to tell you this, was Amatrishana. You introduced me to that recipe and um, that dish. And in fact, I used to come, um, I never quit my day job. I would come back from the agency and I would dine at the restaurant and I probably gained 20 pounds. (laughs) That's the downside of working in the food business as I have now found myself coming back to the business uh, that I probably need to exercise a little more. Um, But that's really cool. I, I, yeah, I absolutely love that period of time in my life. Uh, I'm very nostalgic about that. That entire experience was pretty mind-blowing, all the cool stuff we did. And the fact that you remember that particular dish is 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 epic to me because that's one of my favorite dishes. And it's a very, it's not a very well-known dish. It's kind of one of those really eclectic, only certain people really know about it. It's a very traditional dish that um, has like pancetta and Kalamata olives and tomatoes and like a wine reduction and your, you know, pasta. And it's really, really cool and very rustic. And some people I think have a hard time getting it right. And as you and I were talking about, there's a lot of places out there that might give it a shot. And I feel like it has a 50, 50 success rate of when I go out and order it. But um, the fact that you like that particular dish to me is just, just awesome. Thank you. That's so cool. Well, I I've never forgotten it. And that's been like 20 years. <laughs> I know, right? Man, that's, I, I just feel super old now. <laughs> so you have such a diverse background, um, not only in the restaurant business, but also in retail. How did you move from restaurants into retail? And then now you're back in the culinary field. So you want to talk about that? Yeah, that's, that's a very long story. But the Cliff Notes version is that um, when... When things, uh, when I had to move away from Destino and took another job at a restaurant that I shall not name, but that I absolutely hated so bad, such a terrible place. And it was very hectic. And at that time, uh, my now wife, Marsha, whom you know, um, when we decided to get married, we were both working in the restaurant business and 
as you know, the hours in that industry can be pretty nuts. And I think at that time I was pulling 60, 70 hour weeks, uh, running a kitchen at another place. And Marsha was working in restaurants as well, doing front of the house managing and working, you know, 50, 60 hour weeks. And we just decided that, you know, we really needed to kind of take a break from that industry just so that we could, you know, enjoy <laughs> some time and get married and have, you know, real people lives as, uh, as we tried to say. And then we found out that we both still are just busy people and we just, we don't stop. Our brains don't stop. There's always something in motion. So there really never was any kind of a time to, to relax and enjoy things. We just kind of, I guess, had already forged that path in our blood. So, um, but a friend of mine, was running a retail store and it was a store that I used to shop at. And this was a guy that I used to cook with when I was first learning how to cook. And I was in the store one day and he'd mentioned that he was getting a different job and he had heard somehow, and I don't know because I had never told him that I was, I was looking to make some changes and he got me an interview with his district manager and it was a very short interview process. They brought me on almost immediately. And that was, uh, 14 year project in the making there. Um, I was just going to say that, uh, um, I mean, in retail and the restaurant business there, you've been a fixer in both industries. Did you see a similarity between them? Like, you know, fixing operations and management in a restaurant versus a retail store. What, what's the difference? You know, it's, it's, that's a great question. I think really when it comes down to operations and management, there's a ton of crossover and a lot of the philosophies are kind of the same. So what I noticed a lot was moving out of restaurants and getting into retail management, you run into a lot of the same things. For instance, there's challenges with schedules, there's challenges with, you know, staffing and onboarding, and there's challenges with, you know, kind of cleanliness and organization and training and all that kind of stuff. So all the skills that you learn in the restaurant business, that directly translated to the retail sector. And I had no issues whatsoever adapting to that. You know, there's there's different products that you deal with, but in the sense of like customer service and how do you how do you talk to people? How do you talk to your employees? How do you go about planning your day? How do you hold people accountable? How do you put things in motion? Other than the product being different, the the process as far as managing goes was nearly identical. I just wasn't working 70-hour weeks. <laughs> well, um, here's my kudos for you. Um, Mike Peacock, you are the master of staying calm in a crisis. <laughs> um, being, I've seen it time and again, being patient. And um, you're really good at teaching people um, how to do things. So I think that makes you a stellar manager of any kind. I think now, uh, that's, that's, thank you. That's a huge compliment. I, I will be the first to admit that it wasn't always that way. And, you know, I do come from <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> I do come from the background that I was trained by, you know, a guy that was very similar to the Gordon Ramsay mentality where he was a yeller. He was a screamer. He did cuss at you and throw things and and make you, feel about, you know, two inches tall. And early on in my career, I, I think that I found myself somehow adapting that. And then at one point I said, whoa, this, we got to put the brakes on this. This is not how things are done, you know? And so that I, I made it a conscious effort to say, listen, this is, uh, there's a better way to do things. And, uh, 
yeah, so I adopted really more of a, a calm, almost passive technique, but you know, there's still ways to do that and make sure things happen without scaring people into submission. Yeah. And I, th- I find that when people are scared, they just don't do their best work. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's uh, you get so intimidated. You actually are making it worse. <laughs> exactly. Um, so like, if you think back to um, the retail days, your restaurant days, and then I would even say, you know, currently in your current role as a culinary coach in senior living communities, are there common trouble areas that you find across all industries? I really do. And I keep going back to this, but first and foremost, you know, staff morale, I I think really when I go into a place and the first thing I do is I take a look at what are the employees like and what's the management like, you know, if your morale is low, your people are unmotivated, they're not performing. It's usually not a capability issue. It's usually either a morale issue or a motivational issue. And then usually if it's a morale or a motivational issue really has to do with probably poor management. And that's, that's rampant probably in all industries. And then it comes down to also, you know, lack of training, you know, and a lot of these places use labor as the first, the first course of expense cutting. And that just drives me absolutely nuts that, that, Oh, hey, look, we're falling, you know, we're going above budget or, or we're doing this or we're doing that. Let's just cut the labor pool. And then all of a sudden you run short staffed and your people are freaking out and your customers are getting terrible service. So I see that all the time, you know, and, and then your managers don't have time to actually manage because now they're job coding and they're running around like crazy. And now they're working 60, 70 hour weeks. You know, you run into that. That is always seems to be a thing. And, you know, the similarities with writing schedules and task management and cleanliness and maintenance expectations, coaching, onboarding, inventory, all that stuff is so similar. You know, you run into when they start to fall behind on stuff, the similarities just just go from there. Um, I have a thing with like, you know, people not managing effectively, poor communication, high turnover, inefficient workflow. You know, there's, in my opinion, in a lot of industries, in restaurants and retail, I think there's way too much emphasis on the process, you know, and not enough on developing and training. And I think that's really where the root of the bulk of the problems lie. Yeah, I think that I agree with that. I think also there's a heavy emphasis on the process, but maybe not the results so much. So I I think it's awesome to work backwards. Like what is the result? If, if it's creating a happy, a happy customer yeah. who's satisfied, that's the result we're looking for. Right. There might be a hundred different ways to get there. Um, and you should feel as an employee to be empowered to get there however you can without yeah. breaking rules, right? Absolutely. So how, what's your approach to fixing those issues when you go into a business? Um, like, what are you, what's your philosophy on that? How do you fix these problems? Well, you know, you got to work with the people. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. So I believe in a kind of, I guess you'd call it like a, a four-tiered approach, right? So uh, you have to demonstrate, you know, what needs to happen. 
uh, you know, well, first you have to explain it, right? Here's what we have to do. Okay. And then you have to show people how it's done. And that also reinstates that you, you can do the stuff that you're asking them to do. Okay. Then you watch them do it and then you give them feedback. It's, it's not rocket science. It doesn't have to be that difficult, but you have to set the tone. You have to show people that you're willing to get in the trenches and do the stuff that you're asking them to do. And you have to be able to do it yourself. I mean, that's an important step to not overlook, you know, when people that are asking you to do things aren't capable of doing things, if you're working directly with them, it definitely leads to a respect gap. And it also leads to how do you solve the problem if you can't be a part of the solution, right? So, um, you know, you also have to explain the why. It's important that people understand why they're doing things, especially if there's like some major changes. You know, you know as well as anybody that I hate the phrase, but we've always done it that way. I've talked about this a million times. I despise that phrase just about more than any other phrase in the lexicon of forever. We've always done it that way. Yeah, well, you've always done it wrong. <laughs> you know, that's usually my comeback. And but you have to explain to people, hey, we're, we're going to do it like this because this is the effect on this and this makes things more easy. You'll find that you have more time. You're going to put out better stuff. So you have to tell them why you're asking them to do things and you have to be tactful, but you have to be honest and people want to know where they are. You have to explain to them if they're not doing a good job. Today's culture tells you that you're not a, you know, that, that you're not allowed to tell people they're not doing well. And I get the fact that you don't want to hurt people's feelings. But at the same time, I myself have always been, hey, listen, if I need to fix something, let me know now. Don't tell me a year later when I get a review that I've been screwing up the entire year and I had no idea. Right. Um, And that's that's very common. I think people don't get feedback and, you know, it's not enough to tell somebody that you're not doing good enough, but then you'll turn around and, and walk away and not offer them any assistance. So you have to celebrate the wins when somebody does something awesome you know, you need to let them know, dude, that was killer. Great job, you know, but you have to be able to say, listen, this is where we need to be. This is where we currently are. And then let me show you how to get there. And then you have to commit to doing that. So working on fixing issues, that's always my approach. And it always has been my approach. And I I don't see that changing. It's really about the people and it's about the leadership. And, uh, I think if you get people on your side rather than make them afraid of you, they're they're more likely to work for you. Your turnover is going to be less. Your results are going to be better. And when people have pride in their work, they just do a better job. And you'll find that they'll ask for more. Hey, let me do this. Let me take this on. I'd like to try this. Awesome. That's that's a win. That's true. Um, I mean, because you're respecting their intelligence, number one. And then number two, you're being honest. And I think when people feel comfortable, like they can trust the word of their manager, then they're way more likely to continue to try and ask more questions and continue to improve. And and the feedback loop is huge. We just started at the, um, as you know, at our at our company, talking about radical candor. And there there are methods to give people feedback that um, you give people a couple pieces of positive feedback and then you say, however, I think you could be doing this better. Like this is, you know, and that, that is definitely um, helpful for coaching, which is brings us around to the subject of coaching because that's what you're talking about here is coaching and mentoring. And now you're back in the food service um, industry working as a culinary coach you're, you're fairly new to the industry um, and have been learning with Sean, the 
the ins and outs of communities. But coming from a long break of food service, um, and how, what, did you find anything that surprised you in senior living? Or we, don't, we try not to use the word senior, but sometimes we just have to. So in sure. retirement communities or communities for older adults. Yeah, yeah. I would say that there was quite a bit of surprises. And I think the first thing I noticed was, especially in the first community I went to was like, oh my gosh, look how huge these kitchens are. They're epic. Some of them are really nice. There's tons of potential. But you know, what I realized was I went into this place, huge facilities, tons of equipment, you know, really outdated ideas. Everything from like, you know, food ideas, production, presentation, I did notice I was surprised by how many people were there that were kind of going about their own ways, not just, you know, with no guidance, they were just kind of, you know, doing it like robots. Um, I was also surprised to see kind of how much food was prefab, you know, stuff that was just being being brought in versus scratch production, considering how these facilities are laid out and, uh, you know, (laughs) Stuff that, you know, was really blowing my mind was things like foods that are cheap to buy fresh, things like carrots and potatoes and, you know, really shelf stable items were also being brought in frozen. And I'm like, why would you buy frozen potatoes? I mean, other than like hash browns for breakfast or something, but like, what's the point? You're not saving any money and you're not saving any time, you know, you know, frozen carrots. I mean, you can buy fresh baby carrots, you know, frozen baby carrots. I don't understand. What's (laughs) what's the point? I mean, you're you're spending more money to portion out these bags of frozen carrots than you would be if you bought in an entire case of fresh. Yeah. So stuff like that, you know, and um I, well, I, we've seen, um, we, kid you not, I've seen freeze-dried hash browns in a carton. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I used to call, my dad used to buy those when we were a kid and we'd go camping. So I always call those the camping browns. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and, and I was also surprised at, you know, how much old stuff was floating around, stuff that clearly hadn't been used. And I'm talking years. I mean, things with expiration dates from like years ago. Because again, these places are so huge and, you know, possibly menus changed and leadership changed and and stuff just get, you know, lost or crammed in a corner somewhere and then buried behind other stuff. So yeah, I mean, there there was tons of surprises and I, I think it just really came down to, I expected it to operate more like a restaurant and clearly that that's that's not the case. I mean, you have this restaurant style mentality that I talked to Cecil about a while back, but not actual restaurant production. And I guess that's kind of what I expected. This this idea of like institutional cooking, I thought was gone and it's kind of still there in a lot of capacities. Yeah, it really is. And you know what surprise? I mean, the same thing for me. Um, as you know, I came into this from the branding marketing side. And after several, you know, my first couple times being around a kitchen um, and, and then, and seeing how it was working after having owned a restaurant, it, that what surprised me the most too, was that it's completely predictable. You know exactly how many people you're going to have right. practically for each meal. It's not like a restaurant where you have to kind of guess and, you know, you have to have enough dishes, this and that. But so you have almost complete control of your inventory, the timing, the prep. And it surprised me that there was so much um, reliance on the pre-prepped foods that you were just talking about. Yeah. And, you know, if you you have all this data at your 
at your command, at your disposal, and you have every possible piece of information that you could possibly want to make it be a totally epic service, right? And then it would just fail. Like they still, some places are having a hard time making it happen. And again, I just, I just think it all comes back to nobody's guiding them. It's just kind of a turning people loose and, and here you go. And what, from the resident's perspective, you know, they're the customer and certainly during your times at communities, you've heard some things from residents. What kinds of things are you hearing or did you hear? Yeah, I heard a lot of stuff and I just want to, you know, illustrate how important it is to actually talk to the residents. I know a lot of people are just like, all they're going to do is complain. They're going to tell me this sucks or this is bad or blah, blah, blah. They're going to tell me a story about their childhood. I don't want to talk to them. You hear that a lot from people. And it's just like, but these are the people that are paying to be here and they, they deserve to have quality stuff. So, you know, I, I would say that the biggest things that I heard from residents was how, repetitive a lot of stuff had had become it's the same old stuff over and over and over again you know um really unimaginative food bland you know it is does get challenging because i would hear from you know one sector people oh my god the food's too salty and then i hear from another sector people man this food's really bland you know which tells me that there's probably either recipes not being followed in the kitchen like one guy has a really heavy salt hand and one guy doesn't season anything, you know, because they all have these perceptions of what residents want. And really the residents are saying, well, nobody's really ever asked us exactly, you know, what kind of stuff we want. And I know that, you know, with, with uh, third, third and culinary coach, we're really big on focus groups and surveys and you get that feedback. I know that a lot of these places have received this feedback, but they're either not paying attention to it or they just don't know how to approach it. I mean, the reality is you can't make every single person happy 100% of the time. You're always going to get that one person or those two people who just, no matter what you do, even if they like you, they're going to pretend like they don't. That's just how people are sometimes. But so I would hear a lot about that, you know, is it, you know, it's too bland or it's too salty or it's too boring or it's too, too fancy. You know, you get that a lot too. And, and sometimes chefs have a tendency to try to out chef everybody and then they make things really fancy and you can't pronounce the words and, residents don't want to order stuff that they don't know what the heck it is. I mean, <laughs> that's as a chef myself, that's a painful lesson to learn. You know, you have to, you have to make things in a fashion that people know what it is. You can make something fancy, but just watch out what you call it. You know, don't put a bunch of foreign words in there that people can't pronounce. Right. They all, a lot of people expressed frustration at that. Some of the, some of the specials would have, you know, crazy things that they wouldn't know, you know, what's a demigloss. I, you know, <laughs> you'd have to explain to them what a demi-gloss is and, you know, what's, you know, what's a volier or what's this or what's that? And you'd realize, oh, okay, yeah, it's it's too fancy of words. I can make you an awesome brown sauce or, hell, call it gravy, <laughs> you know, whatever. But just be careful of what you put out there, I think. Um, I heard a lot of complaints about that. And so if people don't understand it, they're not going to want to try it. You'll end up with a ton of waste, you know. Also, you know, it was a dining room, um, you know, was it cleaned? Was it organized? You know, people would say things like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing here. Am I supposed to wait for somebody to seat me? You know, there's just a lot of things that, that people just didn't get asked. They didn't understand the whole process. So I think that, yeah. you know, how do you address it is to, you know, take surveys, you know, comment cards, big deal, you know, make sure that people fill out a comment card. Um, you know, they, they, people feel like they don't have enough choices and they don't understand what's going on. And that was the biggest feedback 
um, that I got and things were too limited. You know, they were concerned about, you know, man, when can I get some new stuff? But then if you put out the new stuff, they didn't know what it was. Yeah. I think, um, one of the things that we've also seen is residents won't always be honest to management or even some of these staff because they feel they don't want to be pegged as being a complainer. Right. And they also don't want to feel um, nervous, it, even though this is absolutely not the case. It would never sure. happen. And I have no idea why residents feel that this would ever happen because it, it doesn't. Right. But they feel worried like, oh, am I going to get um, bad service or have retribution if I complain about something, you know, the food? So, anonymous focus groups and surveys are huge uh, to get to the root of what residents are really thinking. Right. Um, So let's see, you know, there are things in the restaurant industry that are standard. And then when you think about the restaurant industry and then you look at uh, senior living community kitchens and dining programs, what do you notice might be missing or because really it is a restaurant. I mean, it's just a predictable restaurant that has complete control of every service every day. What's missing? Um, you know, I, I think what's missing is a battle plan. <laughs> I think people go into their days and they're so used to their systems that they're not, they're not prepared for any kind of adversity. They're not prepared for something to get, you know, to throw a wrench in their day. You know, somebody calls in sick or, you know, whatever. So I think that there's, there's really nothing that's been written down. You know, people aren't getting, servers aren't really getting assigned, you know, sections or stations and, you know, side work isn't being assigned. Cleaning duties aren't being assigned. Um, any, anything from, you know, prep lists not being filled out. There's a community that, that I know of where every day, they don't have a schedule, which I, I don't even understand how that works just from the legal point of view. And then they didn't have a prep list. They People would just show up when they showed up and figured out themselves what they were going to be doing. And I, I just can't wrap my head around that. Um, you know, I think the other thing that's that's really missing is is there's, um, I guess, free seating. I, the The idea of having to have meals at a specific time because your schedule dictates that to me is completely backwards. I mean, this, this time-based seating, we have breakfast from this time to this time and lunch from this time to this time and dinner from this time to this time. And I get that there's schedules in place, but you know, if you have a full dining establishment with a full kitchen and a full crew, I fail to see why you couldn't just go eat whenever you want. And I think that that's, causes a lot of problems and that that leads to um people you know feeling rushed when they go to eat which was another complaint that i heard you know quite a bit um and then i oh think oh my gosh that's so crazy i i, I mean every, any community that has those really strict rules and of course they all don't but the communities it's um you know, you'll have 50 people at the door waiting for the door to open. And then they all sit down at exactly the same time. And then the service is rushed it, and people are stressed. You know, it's just terrible. It, it's terrible. And it, the, the reality is, you know, you're not necessarily dealing with professional service employees in a lot of cases. And they're not prepared to deal with getting sat 50 people at once or 100 people at once in the case of this last place that we were at. And... So 
now your kitchen is taxed, your servers are taxed. Um, is it doable? Yeah, it's it's doable. There's places that can that can pull it off pretty well, but I, I see the challenge in that, and it's so avoidable that it just makes me wonder why we are still sticking with that model in a lot of places. And um, well, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask you though. Then financially, what kind financially and both um, from a management standpoint, what do you think would be a perfect model? for a dining situation to prevent that from happening? Well, you know, I would say that we're we're probably going to get a little deeper onto this topic than I had planned on. But, you know, really the solution is to approach it like a restaurant. Your dining room is open from this time to this time. Here's your menu. Order what you want. Have some breakfast items, have some lunch items, have some dinner items. You know, you've got a regular menu and then you've also probably got your your cycle menus or your daily specials or, you know, whatever. And, and maybe certain foods can be available like, OK, we'll serve these items from this time to this time. But the idea that you should just go and I'm hungry, I want to have lunch now. It's 11 o'clock. I want to eat my lunch at 11 o'clock. I don't want to eat my lunch at 12 or I want to eat my dinner at seven. I don't want to eat my dinner at 430. I, I fail to see the reasons why people can't just go and have food when they want to have their food. Um, and I, I think it, yeah. it it creates a situation where now you're kind of programming people and it leads to situations where, you know, it, it, it taxes the service. You, mean, you know, getting a hundred tickets at one time versus getting you know, a couple of dozen tickets at one time is a huge difference in the quality of production and the quality of food and the quality of service people get. I don't see it as being a hugely different financial outpouring of staff. You know, um, there's there's ways. And I mean, if we really want to dig into the the meat and bones of it, I think down the road that, that we're going to have a topic where we talk about how to staff appropriately according to your model. And I mean, we could do an entire episode just on that. So we, we won't go down that rabbit hole too deep. But um, yeah, I, I think really just having a restaurant as your model is key to versus having restaurant style dining that's based off a timeline. Um, yeah, I think um, the and I know we we're going to move on from this topic, but it, it it's a meaty one. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a beefy one. It's huge, but I mean, th- that is one of the challenges is that C-level executives and executive teams are not restaurant managers. And so they don't always, they don't know that um, it's very normal in a restaurant kitchen. You've got a cook who's putting food out, but they're not putting food out every minute of their shift. They're right. doing prep work here. They're getting the sauces ready. They're chopping. They're, they're working and then whoops, an order comes in. I'm going to get that order out. Now I'm going back to the prep work. Right. It's multitasking job. It's not, you know, everybody shows up and does production kind of yeah. um, bayer belt style work. Yeah. And I, I think getting back to, you know, to finish up the, the original question, which was, you know, things that we see lacking in this industry. And I, I think this all comes also down to, you know, pride. I think that some people look at their jobs in this industry as not being as exciting as a restaurant. Like you don't have a, a cook in a retirement community saying, man, I'm so stoked that I cook in this industry versus 
a chef at a fancy restaurant who says, yeah, I'm a chef at a four star restaurant. Right. Or the servers are like, yeah, I'm a I'm a professional server at this, you know, senior living community. You know, you don't really have that. So I think that, that leads to I'm going to do the bare minimum just to get by because I know that I'm going to be allowed to do that. And that's, I think, really what we need to change is that perception that you can put out absolutely epic food with epic service and treat it as if you're working at a four star resort. And we'll get back into that later. And then once you change that perception and and people feel like that they can put out awesome stuff, your results are going to be better just from the morale standpoint, just from the, the workplace pride standpoint. Yeah, the sheer delight of the customer too. Like I remember that from the um, the restaurant Cafe Destino, we would have a senior group come in for lunch sometimes. Or you know, remember that there'd be like twelve or sixteen people. Yeah, and um, I was serving a table. I think it was on a Saturday, and we served beet salad. And I remember the the residents, these customers were so they were beaming they were like oh my god i love this beet salad it reminds me of my childhood i love it so much um so so that's the reward too absolutely and so i think what we're going to do right now cynthia is we're going to take a break we're going to have this be part one and then we're going to come back we're going to have a part two and we will get into some more of your questions that i can answer for you so thanks for joining us on part one and we'll be back with part two in just a moment